Episode 153 of the Bevan James Isle Show, an interview with Michael Hempstead. Alrighty, team, welcome along to episode 153 of the Bevan James I'll Show, your fortnightly podcast on the behaviours that create a lifetime of exercise, so you can get all the benefits that come alongside it. I've got to say, it's uh, pretty cool today. I've got a really good interview with a guy called Michael Hempseed. Now, I was recently at a work function, and I was speaking to a lovely lady by the name of Jean Scott, as she's pretty much one of New Zealand's top fitness professionals. Jean is this amazing woman, because are very successful, and, and when we measure success, there's a few ways. She's very good at helping people get results, so she's a very good personal trainer. Um, but she's also someone who really gives back to the industry. She has this sense of responsibility of trying to grow the whole industry, and it's something I really respect, because if I'm going to be really honest, it's probably not something that I'm that strong at. Um, but Jean gives a lot of her time away for free, um, and just helping people win in the industry and lifting the standard of the industry she's on a lot of boards and you know she god knows how she does it because she's a busy woman and she puts a lot of time and effort into kind of doing these things so i have a lot of respect for jen i've known her for 20 years now in the game so she's you know she's a bit of a rock star and i was we had a work uh day a few about three or four weeks ago and i was just talking to her you know about an interview that i did with somebody else um and she mentioned michael hempseed and she was just talking about how she'd been to a talk of my talk michael hempseed a couple of weeks ago uh, and she told quite a fascinating story about michael which i'm not going to talk about right now because he will tell the story in the interview uh and uh, so I thought to myself, he'd be a really good person to get on the interview. Now, Michael's theme that he kind of, you know, when you do public speaking or when you're kind of trying to sell a message, uh, for the longest time his kind of thing was overcoming failure. And he has a, a really interesting story about this. And so we, um, you know, I, I thought when we get on the show we'd talk mainly about overcoming failure. But at the same time, he's just released a new book called Being a True Hero. Uh, understanding and preventing suicide in your community and so as we started speaking in the interview our conversation did kind of touch on overcoming failure but there's a lot of the conversation around um, preventing suicide and there's some really interesting things um, in there and it just you know suicide's such a oh my god it's, it's hard to comprehend how how tragic that can be in somebody's life but um obviously for the person struggling but for their world as well and um and i was actually just at a function or not a function at a barbecue the other night with a couple of my mates and i've got this really one of my best mates mark he has this his son and his stepson actually a guy called kane and kane's just just amazing young man he's just this you know if you could ever hope to have a good teenager he's actually about 18 19 now you just hope that the world can have more young men like this he's um He's intelligent, he's ambitious, he's a good-looking young man, which doesn't hurt him, you know, uh, he's a sporty kid, um, he, he cares, he's just got, he's just got really nice character traits, and I've, and I've kind of stood beside him for, I've known him since he's been about seven, and so I've kind of been a part of his life, or maybe since about 10 or 11, so I've been a part of his life for about seven, eight years, and, and I, unfortunately for me, I'm kind of one of those adults in his life who kind of, you know, that we've got a good connection with. And he was just telling me about how recently um, one of his friends 
is going through this. And uh, he was just saying he, it's, it's hard because he doesn't know how to deal with these situations. And, uh, and I just thought, I, I kind of thought of this interview because I'd already done the interview of Michael and I tried to give some advice from the interview that Michael gave me. Um, and it's just this area that it's so out there and there's so many people struggling. And if we can have better tools on how to help those who we can see are struggling out there, then maybe we can help them through a hard time. Because there's many people who have been at that point where the idea of taking their life comes up. Um, but move through it and, and get through it and get to a place where they have amazing lives after the fact. And so while there will be struggle for many people out there, if we can be the right kind of people around them, then we can kind of support them in some pretty powerful ways. So Michael and I, were going to kind of dig into those two subjects, this kind of overcoming fear and um, just the kind of idea of suicide. And if you want to check out Michael's book, it's called Being a True Hero, and he's got a website, beingatruehero.com, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And you can just see, um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty important stuff. I think I think it's pretty important stuff. Just one thing I want to talk about before we get into the main interview with Michael today is oh, just one thing, and it's a total side note. I live in I live in an area right now. Lots of developments happening. I may have even talked about this on the last show about how there's all the, there's digger. There's a digger outside. I'm looking outside my window right now, and there's a digger digging up this plot of land, and I'm loving it. Absolutely total side note, but I'm loving the digger. Anyway, um, just just a kind of a tidbit. I was coaching my runners this morning and. Uh, we have, they were doing an 80-minute session. So this is the group that's training for a half marathon. And they were having an 80-minute session. And in that 80-minute session, they had to do 20 minutes warming up, 15 minutes at 10K pace, and then 45 minutes at race pace. So when we think about running, if you don't know much about running, warming up is just kind of casual conversation. It shouldn't be hard. 10K pace is you're working, you're working pretty hard. You know, 10K, 15 minutes, there's an intensity that's pretty tough as you're working. Uh, and then what we do is we kind of step it back a little bit in speed because your race pace should be less than 10K pace. But for 45 minutes after you've done that hard effort of 15 at 10K, it's it's pretty challenging, particularly in the last 15 minutes. And one thing I was trying to really install in my runners this morning around mind strategies so one thing we talk about is you know in the first part of the 45 minute block is efficiency and efficiency is moving at the speed you need to move at with as little energy as possible so I was kind of reinforcing that message but then the second message I was talking to them about was I need you to prepare for the moment where it's going to get hard and it's probably going to be about 15 minutes to go in the last block of the workout so in that 45 minutes of 30 uh, at race pace that last 15 minutes, you're getting tired, it, it, your body's starting to hurt a little bit, staying in that pace becomes a little bit harder, and that's a really interesting moment in exercise, because that's the moment where we kind of go on the edge, we kind of go on a tightrope, and that tightrope can go either way, it can go to that place of, oh bugger it, I'll just cruise home, or it can go to that place where you hit the objective of the session, and you get to the end of the session feeling really proud of yourself, feeling good about yourself, being fitter because you've trained better, and also kind of reinforcing good mental stuff. So as I'm riding beside my runners, because I ride a bike as I kind of work around the whole group, um, as I was riding beside my runners and talking to them, I was just kind of put this thing in this kind of tool in place. And it was, what I want you to think about today is with 15 minutes to go, is what strategies will I inject at that time to make sure I hit the objective of the session? So the objective of the session, again, was 45 minutes at race pace. 
But what a lot of people do is when they get to that kind of tightrope moment where they could go either way, and a lot of people go the wrong way in that moment, they fall off the tightrope. In that moment, we want the ability to almost kind of speed up along the tightrope and feel safe and strong through to the end. But what a lot of people do is they just kind of, they hit that moment and they haven't really thought about how they're going to be successful. And so the, the message I was really trying to portray to my runners this morning was, what strategies are you going to put in place at that time? Like what strategies are you going to look to practice at that time when we know the session is going to get just that little bit harder and you could potentially quit? Because what a lot of people will say was, you know, just work harder at that time. But what does that mean? Just work harder. So what I wanted them to think about is what kind of strategies are going to get you through to the end. And I, I suggested some, so I did the whole um, chunking strategy. A chunking is a really good strategy. And what chunking is is where uh, you break it down. So you might have 15 minutes, but you might break it down to two-minute blocks. Or you might use landmarks in front of you. Okay, I'm going to run to the next corner at the next pace, praise myself, reassess, and move to the next landmark. I talked a little bit about using the strategy, which I've talked about in the show in the past, is how do you want to feel at the end of the session? Use that as motivation to push harder at the end. Another one I talked about was um, reminding yourself that you like hard work and that this is an opportunity for you to get more satisfaction out of your, your work because you like hard work. Another thing was to focus on great running techniques, so to be quite practical about how you're approaching this moment. And so what I was really looking to train my, my runners to do was, in that tough moment, not just to think, I've got to get through it, but think about the tools you're going to inject in that moment. And this is such an important part of the athletic journey. Like I remember I, I watched an interview, um, there was an All Black game, the All Blacks are the, the New Zealand rugby team, and they're very, very successful. Um, you know, I think... Arguably now, arguably the most statistically the most successful sports team in like the last 20 years. So international sports team at least. And so when we look at their success, there was an interview with somebody um, after they played the English team last year. So they played the English team last year and it was a pretty close game and they managed to win with a couple minutes to go. And I think the English scored a try. I can't remember the exact scenario, but you'll kind of get what I mean. The English scored a try close to the end. The All Blacks had to come back and win the game, and they did. And, and the All Blacks are kind of renowned at kind of always pulling through in the toughest moments. Now, what was really interesting about this was I listened to an interview afterwards, and there was, someone was talking about Kieran Reid, and Kieran Reid is the All Black captain. And as soon as the, the English scored the try, behind the try line, all they were talking about was the process to win the game. They weren't dwelling on the moment. They weren't... Um, you know, letting emotion take over. They weren't, you know, they weren't going to a place that was ultimately going to take them off focus. In that moment, they just went back to focus. Here's what we need to do. Okay, let's get focused. Here's what we need to do. Here's what we're going to do now. Here's the next strategy here. Here's what we're going to do to give ourselves the chance of winning the game. And that's what this moment was for the All Blacks. It was the hardest moment in the game. And what strategies were they going to use to give themselves the chance to win the game? Now, in that example, they won the game. And and my running example, this morning at the end of the session, it was so cool because all running, like we have lots of runners all running towards us and I could see whatever I kind of tried to coach upon them and my other coach, Kylie, whatever we tried to coach upon them, they were focused. They were pushing hard to the end. And that was because we'd reminded them to use strategies and obviously in those moments, they were using strategies. 
So I know I've used this as a running analogy, but in many ways this is an analogy we can use in lots of areas of our lives. Start to learn the moments when we're fading, when we're falling off good behaviours, and then knowing that I want to put strategies in place right now. So that's just a little tidbit before we get into the main gist of today's show and the interview with Michael. I'm just going to pause and be back in a second because I want to thank my patrons. Okay, I'm back. It only took you one second. It took me about a minute in the real world. So I want to say thank you to uh, Scott Young, Akadaka. We've got Dale the Unstoppable, oh, sorry, David the Unstoppable Storm Hail, Okpoel, um, the Mystery. We've got Karina Lifting Higher Hirschman. We've got Rosa at Deeper Level Scott. We've got Scott Leadbelly McMillan and Charlotte Music to the World Bell. These are all supporters of the Bevan James Isles Show. They donate some money to show each time I release a show. And if you want to become a patron of the show, you just go to bevanjamesisles.com and you'll see on there there's a little link to Patreon. Go on there and basically whatever you choose to donate, each time I release a show, you donate that amount. And it really really helps me in what I'm doing. Seriously, it really does. So thank you to all the patrons of the show. And again, go to Bevan James Isles if you want to become a patron. Anyway, we're going to get into the interview with Michael about overcoming adversity or failure and um, suicide. Here it is right now. Righto team, uh, welcome along to Michael Hempseed and he is a man with some many talents and a very fascinating story and some amazing insights in as well. So welcome along to the show Michael. Thank you very much for having me. So maybe give it an introduction about yourself and maybe I know there's a kind of a, a defining moment story that we'll probably share today which is pretty great but maybe just share a bit about your kind of academic and your career history and a bit, just a bit about yourself. Certainly. Uh, there's a few things I've been involved in over the years. At the moment, I mainly run workshops around mental illness and suicide prevention. Uh, I've travelled all over the world. I've been to interesting places like China, Morocco. I've seen the nuclear reactor up close. So if ever there's um, an emergency, the lights go out, I now glow in the dark and I can lead people to safety. Oh, wow. <laughs> like the Simpsons. Something like that, yes. And so and you, your study came from, you studied psychology, was it? I did, yes. I've got an honours degree in psychology that I gained from the University of Canterbury. Okay, great. So there's, this, there's a, I watched your little TED talk that you did, and, um, and I thought maybe we could probably start with that. So tell us a bit about, tell us the TED talk story, because it's pretty fascinating. Yes. So uh, in 2012, I had the ingenious idea to try going on Britain's Got Talent. Uh, growing up, I always used to love watching people like Paul Daniels and David Copperfield on TV, and just once, I always wanted to try doing a magic trick in front of a big audience. And um, when I heard Britain's Got Talent were looking for applications, I thought, this is my one and only chance. I might as well take it. Uh, so I came up with a magic trick, and we did a few rehearsals. All the rehearsals went really well. Uh, and I asked, you know, I need 20 minutes backstage to set this up before I go on. Can I have 20 minutes? Is that a problem? And everyone I met on the production team said, that's fine, not a problem. Unfortunately, it came to the big day, and at about 4.30 in the afternoon, someone came to me and said, we need you on stage now. So I was throwing everything together. I was literally duct taping things together, throwing things in pockets. Nothing was set up. I remember standing on the edge of that stage and thinking, this is almost certainly going to be a disaster. But if I don't do this, I'm always going to wonder what might be. Mm. So I thought, hey, let's have a go at this. Yeah. Uh, knowing that uh, this probably isn't going to go so well. Uh, so to cut a long story short, basically everything that could possibly have gone wrong did go wrong. Everything that could not possibly have gone wrong also somehow managed to go wrong. Uh, I had 3,000 people in the audience yelling off, off, off. Wow. Just imagine standing on a huge stage, all alone, 
with that many people shouting off, off, off. Mm. It's one of the worst moments in my entire life. I wanted to dig myself into a hole. I wanted to not come out of there. And I thought this was going to ruin my career. I thought every time someone Googled my name and I apply for a job, they're going to say, sorry, we don't want you. Mm. Anytime I want to get into a relationship with someone, they're going to Google my name and say, say no. So I thought when this happened, my life was ruined. But this didn't happen just in front of 3,000 people in an audience. This was going to be broadcast in front of 12 million people. Wow. So I always say, if you're going to fail, fail big, right? <laughs> um, so at the time, uh, I was running school camps in the UK, and a group came in. I was hoping that they had not seen the most popular show on TV. Um, unfortunately, as soon as they walked in the door, they recognized me. And I wanted to say, no, I've got an identical twin. You must have me confused with someone else. Um, but they recognized me immediately. Um, they obviously asked me what happened. But first of all, I asked them, well, what are your talents? And you know, people would say things like they're good at playing basketball, they're good at playing the piano, they're good at dancing. And then I said, my talent is failing. And they all laughed at me. But then I said, no, no, I am serious. Anyone can fail once. That requires no effort and no skill. But to have the talent of failing, you need to fall off a horse, get back up and try again. Now, remember, I was just saying this to cover up the most humiliating moment of my life. And the group didn't say much to me at the time, but afterwards some of them came up to me and they said, we think you're one of the most inspiring people we've ever met. And to be honest, they were just trying to make me feel better. I thought they were just... uh, you know, to kind of help me out here. But I thought, how on earth could someone be inspiring that failed so spectacularly? Um, another group came in, uh, they'd seen the show, so I told them the same story, and I got the same reaction from them. And it took me probably three years to actually work out why people liked the story. But since I got a good reaction from two groups, I told it to another and another, and I've been telling the story to a lot of people since then. As you mentioned, I did a TEDx talk on this a few years ago. But eventually what I figured out that it wasn't so much the fact that I failed that was what people wanted to hear, but it was the fact that I was willing to openly share my failure with people. And unfortunately, we live in a world that hides failure from people. And this can have catastrophic consequences for a lot of people. Uh, at one point I was working as a youth worker with young people with mental illness and, and difficult situations. I had a young 16-year-old girl come and see me. And she told me she had this dream of going to the Olympics. That was what she had wanted her whole life. But before she got to the Olympics, she had to get into a national sports team. The day before she came to see me, she received a rejection letter in the mail saying that she hadn't been accepted into the sports team. Immediately and without thinking, she tried to end her life. Now, 24 hours later, she knew that would have been a dreadful mistake. But in that immediate um, reaction, in that immediate moment, when she suddenly lost everything that she had ever hoped for, it was too overwhelming for her. And unfortunately, around the world, we've lost a lot of professional athletes, um, you know, when they get a career-ending injury, when they cut from a team or something like that. And it was when I started to hear story after story after story like this that I started to realise why people liked my story so much. Mm. So one thing you talk about in your TED Talk, which I found quite fascinating, was... Um what we would traditionally think would be the triggers for um, like an extreme thing like suicide aren't necessarily the case. And, and, and maybe you want to give us a little bit more about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I've just written a book on suicide prevention. And we often think the only reason that someone would die by suicide is after a long history of depression. Mm. And for some people that certainly is the case. So I'm not saying that isn't a factor. 
But for other people, um, research suggests that a third to a half of all suicides could be the result of a same-day crisis. So in other words, a relationship breakup, uh, getting fired from a job, suddenly losing a lot of money, um, or a career-ending sports injury or something like that. Hmm. So, so tell us a bit about this, your, your book and what are some of the guidelines um, you know, because I suppose, you know, there's kind of, you know, this audience here, you know, who know, who, who knows who our audience, who our audience is, but there's, there's an aspect of the person who's listening, maybe struggling. Then there's the aspect of the person who may have people around them struggling. So what are some of the things we need to think about with supporting or looking at some of the triggers and things like that? Yeah, absolutely. So in the past, we've often said to people that are suicidal, if you're feeling suicidal, you should talk to someone. So that's really the personal responsibility However, one of the problems with, say, the illness depression is people don't necessarily realise they have it. And depression significantly affects the way that people think. So it might be really obvious to someone around them that they have depression, but sometimes people with depression don't understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. So I think instead of the personal responsibility model, what we need is the community response model. So in other words, if you notice someone's in a bad situation, if they're maybe talking a lot about death, talking about wanting to die by suicide. I'll go into a few more in a minute. But any of these warning signs, then you should take responsibility and you should go up to that person and ask them. In the past, we've often left this to psychiatrists. But when you walk around the streets, how many psychiatrists do you see patrolling the streets looking for people that are suicidal? Mm. Mm. Yeah. None. Yeah. So... Unfortunately, instead of having the idea that we have the experts at the top being the only ones that can manage this, in the early stages, I believe anyone in the community should be aware of the warning signs and should know how to react with this. Because the person I think that's most likely to pick up if someone's suicidal in the first instance is more likely to be a parent, a teacher, a friend, um, an employer, a coach, someone like that. So basically, we need everyone in the community to be aware of the warning signs rather than just the experts at the so the example you shared before was a little bit about like if someone's talking about suicide, and that's, that's a pretty obvious example. So that's, you know, but for a lot of people, they're not going to express it in that way, you know, like that. So when we talk about signs of suicide, um, what are some of those signs that, you know, the, that we should look out for in those around us? So one thing to be very clear is um, there's no one particular sign for anyone. Um, Suicide is a very complex issue. Mm. It can vary for lots of people. As I mentioned at the start, some do happen incredibly quickly when people discover they've had a same-day crisis and there's very little warning. And we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, But some of the other warning signs could be things like giving away prized possessions. If you know someone has something, maybe a family heirloom or something like that, they've treasured their whole life and they suddenly or casually give that away, Possibly you need to start asking some questions. Another one is suddenly getting better after a long history of depression. We often think that would be a good sign. But actually, unfortunately, um, often people have made a decision to end it all. Oh, and okay. that's why they're peaceful. Probably the best indicator, though, is hopelessness. Now, one of the problems is that people that are suicidal don't go around saying they're hopeless. But if you read between the lines of what saying, uh, then sometimes you can work out that they're hopeless. So, for example, if someone's fired from a job and they say something like, I'm never going to get another job again, they're not explicitly saying they're hopeless, but if you read between the lines, that's actually a hopeless statement. Or if they have a relationship breakup, I'm never going to find someone else. Mm. So anything that you think could sound hopeless, then it's really important to talk to the person. 
Okay. Yeah. You can get. Yeah. And so, um, basically, if you are concerned that someone's suicidal, you should go up with that person and gently, but explicitly ask the person, are you planning to end your life? Now, you probably don't want to do that out of the blue as soon as you meet the person. No. But you can say what you've noticed. So you can say, I know you used to be a really outgoing and happy person, and lately I've noticed you seem to be really down and withdrawn. I'm really concerned about you. Are you planning to kill yourself? Maybe not out immediately out of the blue, but um, at yeah. some point you certainly want to say that. Now, some people think, well, shouldn't we uh, only leave that to the experts? But how does someone get to an expert mm -hmm. unless someone in the community asks that question? Some people also worry that, you know, if you ask that question, well, will that make people become suicidal? Research is incredibly clear on this. If someone is not suicidal and you ask them, it will not give them ideas. If someone is suicidal, it will either have no impact on their suicidal thinking or in most cases actually reduces it. Do, do, um, how do they tend to respond? Yeah, so um, in my life I've asked a lot of people this question. Um, as far as I'm aware, only one person has ever lied to me. Um, they didn't die of a suicide, but I later found out they had suicidal thoughts. Um, most people are actually incredibly grateful if a caring person asks them this question. Um, so sometimes we think we're going to offend the person or they're not going to want to know. But actually, most people um, want help. You know, I don't believe I've ever met anyone that actually wants to die by suicide. They want some sort of option, and they see that as the only way out. Because it, it does seem quite extreme to, you know, like, and I get the value of what you're talking about, but it seems, it's such a big word, isn't it? You know, so, you know, are you planning to kill yourself? You know, like it's, yeah. you know, oh, I notice you're feeling, I notice your communication saying you're feeling a bit hopeless, and I, I notice you kind of maybe don't have the same energy lately. Uh, uh, are you planning to take your life? You know, like, it's such a big statement to come from somebody, isn't it? And it, I imagine a lot of people don't feel comfortable saying that. No, and I th well, I think um, if we get the no response, we're all comfortable with that. You know, if the person says no, we can breathe a sigh of relief. Think, Thank God, yeah. that's easy. Yeah. We don't mind that. But it's the yes response that fills people with terror. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think sometimes, actually, we've got to make ourselves uncomfortable to help someone in need. Well, and the other thing, because I've had a couple experiences in my life, and I, I'm kind of a community leader. I'm in roles in my community where I'm kind of a leader. And I've had a couple of moments where one where a guy came up to me and he said, he'd actually listened to my podcast, and he said, listening to your podcast stopped me from killing myself last night, which was a really a nice thing, but also kind of like, whoa. Um, and then another person who kind of came up to me and communicated how um, you know they were thinking about doing it. And, and I felt hopeless, to be honest, because I didn't really know... Like they talked to me, and then I, I I tried to ring a doctor, and I just I just felt a bit hopeless and not quite sure what my role was. And 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 admittedly, I didn't have deep relationships with these people; they were more just people who saw me as a community leader. But um, yeah, it was a bit of a tough moment for me, and I tried to find help, uh, but it wasn't necessarily. I don't know if I did a very good job of it. Yeah. So basically, I think any help in almost all situations is better than no help at all. Okay. I've talked to many people that are suicidal over the years. Um, occasionally someone will say, I asked for help and the person made it worse. But more often than not, people say, I tried to ask for help and no one helped me. Um, and I've heard many stories of people that have been suicidal that told, you know, a sports coach or a teacher um, or a grandparent. And these were people that had no expertise whatsoever with mental illness, but they were a caring adult. Okay. And I think okay. more often than not, what you need is a caring adult. So if ever you do ask someone that question, are you suicidal, and someone says yes, I think people think, well, what do I say? 
And what they're often looking for is a magic sentence that'll magically make everything better. Mm. And actually, if the person's got to that point, there probably isn't a magical sentence. But just listening to the person and being there for them is really important. And saying something like, I am so glad you told me that is a great thing to say. Because you imagine if you're feeling suicidal and someone's just asked you this, how vulnerable would you be feeling? You'd be thinking, you know, have I told the right person? Have I made a mistake? Are they angry at me? But if they hear, I am so glad you told me that, told the right person, and there's at least one person that can help me. It's also interesting as well. The next thing you need to do... Oh, sorry, sorry, you go. And then the next thing you need to do is to give the person help. Um, So I've got a magical secret for this. Um, It's called Google. Okay. But one of the things that not a lot of people know is there is this extraordinary amount of help out there. So if ever you're um, working with someone that's suicidal, you could always Google, you know, suicide help in your area, you know, whether it's Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, wherever it is. Um, there is always, always someone out there that can help. Um, I don't have the Australian statistics, but I know in New Zealand, there's 5,000 social services nationwide. You know, for a country of 5 million, that's a hell of a lot of them. Yeah, and it's, and it's interesting because um, just going back to your first point around um, communication, them expressing it, you know, like... Uh, it's something where I imagine it's something they're ashamed of. Is that fair to say? Unfortunately, yes. Um, often, um, particularly, um, a lot of people feel like, oh, "Why do I feel this way?" And one of the worst things to say about depression is sometimes people have got the perfect life. You know, sometimes they know they're from a good family. Sometimes they know they've got it all, and yet if they feel suicidal, they feel doubly bad. Oh, okay. You know, unfortunately, in the same way, you know, sometimes really healthy people can get cancer or have heart attacks, and it's not their fault. So, yeah, it's just having that caring adult that says, I'm so glad you told me that. I'm not angry at you. I just want to help you as much as I can. Now, you talk about the one-day event. So, like, um, are there some things that we need to be aware of of those people in our life? You know, because obviously if there's a breakup, or, or, or is there a different approach or is there different things we need to look for at these times? Absolutely. So if we go back to that example of that girl that wanted to go to the Olympics, I would say it would be very hard to stop that suicide there and then. She was home alone when she received the letter, so it would be very difficult to do something about that there. However, I would ask, how on earth did she end up in a situation where her life was about one thing, and if she loses that one thing, she's lost a lot? Mm. So I think what we need to do as a community is look for people that are potentially vulnerable. Um, So you know, if you know that someone only has one relationship, one hobby, one goal in life, and they were to lose that, what does that mean for them? Mm. Mm. And, and that could even be one relationship as well, couldn't it? Yes, very much so, yeah. Um, people, um, Some people, when they develop a romantic relationship, if they lose all their other friends, that makes them more vulnerable to suicide. Because if you lose that one thing, you've lost a lot. Now, do you find um, for those people, if we look at the different types, and again, I'm sure there's more than the ones we've talked about, but... Do you find that uh, the path back from the person who's had the one-day kind of experience or that, that one moment in life experience, do you find the path back is easier for them post? Um, a lot of those people, they change their thoughts very quickly. Okay. And one of the things that I've found that is incredibly helpful is just to talk about failure. Okay. Um, and it staggers me the number of young people that I talk to that don't know how many successful people there are that have failed spectacularly. Mm. I mean, for example, the Beatles were turned down by every major recording studio. Mm. They probably thought they had um, you know, a number one hit. They go to the first recording studio, they think it's going to be wonderful. 
sorry, we're not interested. Mm. And they go to the next one and the next one and the next one. And I've heard so many young people say to me, you know, I can't fail one exam at school. If I fail one exam, I won't get into college, I won't get a job, my life will be ruined. Well, that's not the case at all. You know, there are many successful people that have failed miserably at something and they've managed to overcome that. Mm. Mm. Um. Just anything else you want to touch on with regards to the suicide stuff? Because I would like to go into kind of a bit more depth into failure, but anything yeah. else you want to add to that? Um, I've got a website called beingatruehero.com. Uh, that's the website for the book that I set up. I've put some free talks on there, so if you're concerned about someone in your community, uh, if you're not sure how to approach someone, uh, there's some information about how to do that. But I think that um, instead of making suicide prevention something that's only about a small group of people, I actually think that's something that every single person in the community needs to be aware of. Yeah, it is that thing of almost having like a bit of a like a beacon for just just being aware of other people's state, really, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and if you know something, don't be afraid to go up to the person. Yeah, and you're not intruding if you do it with love and care. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's the intention behind it, isn't it? And if ever I was suicidal, I would rather a hundred people came up to me and asked me and made sure I was okay than for everyone to walk on by and think, mm, maybe he's okay, I don't know what to do. Mm. And even if they didn't do it right, I still prefer people making attempts at um, asking, am I okay? Yeah, okay. So, so to wrap up your kind of points is, is having awareness of your community. Um, then if you see state changes that are, are going down the wrong path, is don't be afraid to communicate with that person. And if you if you see there's kind of a, a hopelessness coming through, communicate, are you you know, looking to take your life or something like that? Uh, but do it with the way of caring. And then look for, you know, tell them that you're happy that they communicate that with you, but also then look to guide them towards the right type of support who can support them along the way. Absolutely. So anyone in the community can ask those initial questions in terms of counselling and things like that, that needs to be left to the experts. Yeah, and then that's where I struggled because, uh, you know, like it just seems like such a big responsibility when someone, you know, like, um, and, and I knew I didn't have the skills and so I was like, oh, no, what am I going to do here? And so, yeah, it was, it, it was a challenging thing. Yeah, it's the same as a physical first aid course. You know, around the country we teach people physical first aid. So if someone has a heart attack or a stroke or something like that, what you're not doing is you're not teaching someone the finer points of brain surgery or something like that you're teaching someone how to keep someone alive until more help comes along yeah, that's good and that's what we need to, everyone yeah, that's need to be aware of in terms of suicide prevention what about people who could listen to this and actually feeling this way right now yeah um i really encourage you tell someone um you know go see your gp um talk to a friend a family member hopefully they will listen hopefully they will understand if they don't keep on trying um, one of the messages I keep giving to people is the first person you go to doesn't help, try the second or the third. There will be someone out there that can at least make things better, if not make things a heck of a lot better. Mm. So just keep on trying. Mm, okay. Um, so going back to you, um, this idea of um, failure and you know being healthy with failure, I suppose, is what we're looking at here. Um, what are the, some of the key concepts that you really promote around this? I think we've got a culture that hides failure shames people but actually the only way that you ever learn anything is by failing I mean some of the most important discoveries I've made in terms of my work um, are when I've had spectacular fails Mm. Um, when I've discovered oh well that didn't actually work Um, for example when I started doing this sort of work I set up an HR company um, trying to help people with difficult employees in the workplace and that didn't really work Um, but I I learned okay well that doesn't work 
but try something else. Um, and I think one of the big problems is if we have a culture that is afraid to fail, they're afraid to be innovative. Because the only way that you actually get really great ideas is if you're willing to fail. If you always play it safe and you only ever do, or we tried this last year, it worked, let's try it again, you never really go that extra mile. You never come up with these wonderful ideas or you never achieve as much as you can because you're always looking over your shoulder and thinking, what if I fail? Mm. Mm. I think one thing that's also really important with this kind of concept of dealing with failure is um, is the attitude you bring to it, isn't it? So it's an attitude of it's an opportunity, not a, you know, a, a bad thing for me. Yes, absolutely. And too many people think that if you have one failure, that means your whole life is a failure. Mm -hmm. There's a huge difference between one failure that can actually be a hugely positive experience and you can learn and grow from that to having your whole life as being a failure. And I actually think some of the biggest failures in life that I've met are the people that aren't willing to try and they're not willing to fail. Yeah. They play it safe and you know, they never achieve anything. But I think the people that really achieve things, they have plenty of failures along the line. But I suppose there is a, there is a journey from being the person who has had because often what I I find is that I like for example I've got these, these running groups and and we deal our, our target market is people who have failed with exercise a lot so so the the thing I often talk about is that they they have a they th they think they're going to fail so they go into it with this mindset I'm going to fail but it's partly because they have a history that reinforces failure so like every experience I've had with exercise is due to, you know, they've failed in. So they've joint gyms, they failed. They, they tried a running program, they failed. They tried this, this, and that. And so it's really easy to understand why they keep away from it. Because it's not just I've tried once and failed, it's like I've tried 100 times and I've failed. So there's no evidence in my past to tell me that, you know what, I'll be able to get better at this. And, and so I think one thing that I always try to promote for people, particularly in areas where, um, you know, they have a history of failure. Because it, you know it's easy to get down after once, but if you try to get down after ten times, um, and, and one thing I always try to encourage is this kind of idea of start with small wins. Like don't yep. you know just go back to really small wins. And so like with our running group, um, the the first three weeks of the program is extreme. Like and the way I designed the program was just how can I guarantee they're going to win. You know, and and then what's they so they start to experience the other side, you know, and start to experience success, and that tends to build momentum. So I think one thing to also recommend around failure is this kind of idea of, it's, you know, in areas where you have a long history of failure, is your first job is to be how do I create some wins along the way? Absolutely, and even if it's just signing up for an exercise group or running group or something like that, if you fail twenty times, that's a massive achievement. Mm, mm. The people that um, don't even get that far. So if you've just signed up for something, you know, celebrate that. Mm, mm. You have tips around that stuff. I think it's really important to know that I actually think the secret to success is failing and failing again and again and again. Mm. Um, mm. You know, if you look at any industry, like say the aviation industry, you know, the early days of aircraft, unfortunately, were filled with lots of failures. Mm. Mm. Um, but you know, we learned from that. We grew yeah. and developed. Um, and one of the things that often annoys me is a lot of media publish stories about, you know, the 18-year-old tech guru that's an instant millionaire. Mm. And while that does occasionally happen, you know, the reality is most people to be really successful, you know, they have a lot of challenges along the way. Yeah. 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 And, and, it's, and, and, and uh, like that self-identity, I think, is what you're saying there, isn't it? It's that self-identity of I'm the person who keeps getting up through any experience, you know, it's that kind of owning that identity of, I'm willing to keep getting up, not I will suppress myself if I fail once. 
And I think there's a huge difference between um, a one-off failure and people considering themselves a failure for life. Mm. Confuse the two. That you know, if they tried to join a gym and you know they had a lot of enthusiasm on January first, but then by January fifth they think, oh, this is too hard. That's a one-off failure. Mm. And I think the mistakes is the way that people define themselves and they say, I'm a failure. Mm. It's not actually correct. You've made one mistake. You haven't got it right then. That does not define your whole life as a failure. Yeah. Yeah, and, and but it's a, it's a different journey for the person who sees himself as a failure, isn't it? It's a harder journey, let's be honest. It really is, yes. Yeah. And so there's some significant work around changing your mindset. Yeah. Around. Yeah. Um, you a famous go? psychologist called Martin Seligman. Yep. And he came up with something called um, internal attribution styles or external attribution styles. And he found that, you know, when something went wrong, say if someone slammed a door at their partner, um, if you attribute that externally, so you say it was a gust of wind or the person had a bad day at work, you're much more likely to feel happy about yourself. But if you attribute that internally, say, I upset that person, I've annoyed them, you always attribute things to yourself and your failings and your mistakes. Mm. People tend to take that much worse. Mm. So sometimes, you know, um, maybe if you did not do so well joining a gym or a running group or something, you know, maybe you were really stressed. Maybe you had a lot on at work. You know, maybe there are other factors rather than just self-blame. Mm. Well, and the other thing is as well, maybe the program was a poor program for you. You know, you know, like it's that, that kind of thing as well. Like you weren't set up to be successful in that program. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's, you know, thousands of different exercise programs, you know, not everyone's going to work for every different person, you know, and mm. um, what might work brilliantly for one person might not work for someone else. Mm. So I think it's really important that we don't have a one size fits all. Um, we have multiple different options for multiple different people. I think going back to that Martin Seligman piece is really interesting. I just remember when I was younger, there was a period where I saw myself as clumsy um, yeah. and, and kind of, and so anything that would happen any kind of trip or anything it was just a reinforcement of that clumsy. I am clumsy. It's the kind of you say it's that kind of internal. What was the word? Internal affirmation Attrib- or attribution? Yeah. Okay, yep. Um, and then eventually, I just one day I realised I was like, you know what? Everybody trips up, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and once and once I found that kind of everybody trips up, then yeah. it, it went to an external. It's just like you know, in life you're going to trip up because there's going to be things on the road at time. And yeah. instantly in that moment. That, that identity around being clumsy disappeared instantly. And it's a good example of that, isn't it? Absolutely. And I think, you know, if you do walk down a street and you trip up, you know, oh, I'm clumsy, I'm such an idiot, why did I do this? Yeah. If yeah. you think you walk down a street, you might have taken 100 steps and you only tripped up once. Yeah. It's actually 99% of it was successful. Mm, mm. Okay. Oh, and human beings make mistakes all the time. You know, it is normal for us to do stupid things from time to time. Yeah. It happens. Yeah. And and we've got the, when a lot of people make these mistakes, they think, oh, I'm so stupid, I'm so different from everyone else. But actually, lots of people make mistakes. Yeah, it's a human experience, isn't it? It is. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, um, just anything else you'd like to talk about or want to add to the conversation? Just that failure does not have to be the end. So when the disaster in Britain's Got Talent happened for me in 2012, I thought my life is ruined. I thought there's no way I'm ever going to be able to recover from this. Six years later, I can say I'm genuinely happy. I absolutely love what I do for a job. My life is going really well now. I got married two years ago. But I couldn't actually see that in that failure. Mm-hmm. I couldn't actually see that actually this one failure is not going to define me. There is actually a way out. And you know what? People have actually been unbelievably supportive of my failure. You know, all my true friends, you know, they were incredibly supportive of me. 
They told me about the other things that I was good at. So here was, I think this was a catastrophe. But actually, that wasn't the way that other people saw it. Mm. And sometimes we need to actually try and think of, well, how do other people see this? Did, did you keep magic up? Uh, yeah, I still do a few tricks here and there for people. Nice, nice, nice. Good on you. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, good on you for um, for for doing that. But also, thank you for coming on the show because there's some really interesting insight there. And and, and suicide in particular is such a it's 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 a bit of a taboo subject. Like it's one of those things where in society we know it's a problem, but we don't necessarily know how to deal with it. And um, you know, and, and and obviously there's people who have tried to focus on this, but also just the everyday person. You know, like I heard a horrific one of a 14-year-old who took their old life late last year, and you just think, how, what, a, what a waste, and how sad is that? I mean, that's largely why I do what I do. Um, I lost someone reasonably close to me when I was 14 or 15. Yeah. And, yeah, I just don't want anyone else to go through that. Yeah. Um, you know, when I used to work as a youth worker with people that were suicidal, people would say to me, you must have the worst job in the world how do you cope? Doesn't this make you really depressed yourself? But actually, it was the most joyful job that I ever had. And I don't like seeing people in pain. And sometimes I would see people bawling their eyes out, sometimes on the worst day of their entire lives. But actually, I'd catch up with people you know, three months later, a year later, and the overwhelming majority of people would be doing much better. Mm-hmm. So with the right help and support, there is a way through this. Yeah. Uh, your book and your website's? Yeah, so the book is called um, beingatruehero.com. Uh, so, uh, so the website's um, beingatruehero.com, and the book is called Being a True Hero, Understanding and Preventing Suicide in Your Community. And, and it's probably a good book for everyone to read, but obviously parents right now is probably pretty, pretty particularly important. Oh, absolutely. Um, certainly parents, teachers, counsellors, people like that. Any, um, this one, we often think that the biggest risk group for suicide will be teenagers, but actually, the biggest risk group around the world for suicide is males 45 to 65. Really? Yeah. And so we spend a lot of time focusing on youth suicide prevention. Um, and certainly that's important. I'm not saying yeah. um, to stop doing that. But actually, if we really want to um, reduce the suicide numbers that we have, um, we actually need to start focusing on that older age group. And do we, do we know why? Um, I think um, sometimes the difficulty in getting support for some of these people, maybe they don't know how much support is out there. Uh, there was one really interesting study that asked people that made a suicide attempt, why did you do it? And they might not have said this in so many words, but they effectively said, I didn't know where to find help. Okay. So, you know, if we have a, if someone has a heart attack, they know to go to the doctor, but we often don't tell people where to go for help if they have a mental illness or if they're feeling suicidal. Mm. Um, I also think um, a midlife crisis, yep. and particularly um, retirement, because unfortunately in the Western world, we define ourselves by what we do for a job. Yeah. And I think a lot of people think that when I'm retired, I will have no purpose in life. Mm. But actually, there was a really interesting study that found that most people are happiest in their life after age 70. <laughs> There's things like that that you can tell people that might help them through that. And, 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 and how much of it, like again, I'm not, how much is it um, the male kind of, you know, she'll be right attitude? I think that plays on it. Although um, I speak all over New Zealand um, to all sorts of different groups, and I work with you know construction workers and these these big males, and you think, mm, are they ever going to want to hear about this? But I would say in the last two or three years, there's been an incredible openness um, to hearing this. Uh, very, very rarely do I encounter people that are resistant to hearing this. 
I think there has been a significant change that um, particularly men are much more open to talking about this stuff, men are much more open to seeking help for this. Great. Um, I think, yeah, there has been a real change in this. Okay, good. Well, that's great to hear. Well, thank you for your time. I'll put a link to your websites and your book up on uh, the show notes for this episode. Uh, just keep doing what you're doing, mate. It's really important work. Yeah, thank you very much for the interview. Awesome. Right, I think that's pretty much today's show is done. And so, again, as you can see, there's a... Um, Good, good interview. Some really important subjects talked about there. And if you want to get his work, I'll put a link to it on the show notes for Bevan, on bevanjamesisles.com. And you can go there and get either a book or just check out his own work. So bevanjamesisles.com is the place to go. Um, if you want to become a patron of the show, go to bevanjamesisles.com as well. And you can become a patron of the show. If you want to email me, it's bevanjames at gmail.com. Uh, yeah, just anything else? You know, we'll spread the word about the show. Uh, that's pretty much it for today. I'm going to... I haven't done a piano lesson in a while and I'm having a piano lesson this afternoon I'm liking it because one thing I did with my piano earlier or late last year is I took a step back in my learning and what I mean by that is I went down a couple grades I went back because when I first started learning the piano I kind of I've learned it intermittently um, and so I thought to myself and, and the problem with not I've learned it intermittently I just haven't learned it in developing the broad range of skills all at the same time. And so there's some skills I have in the piano where I'm, you know, good skill level, and then some where I'm, you know, better skill level, and then some where I'm really poor. And so I've kind of took the step back um, and kind of so I can get everything more aligned, and it's been a really good step, I have to say. It's been a really... I think my overall planes improved so much just because I've kind of taken that step back and got some more fundamentals in place. And uh, just because of the new year and Christmas and all the rest of it, I fell behind my lessons. And so this afternoon, I'm going to see Chris, my piano tutor. I'm looking forward to that because he's a always have a good yarn anyway, but he's also a pretty great tutor. So I'm looking forward to that. So that's, that's my day. Anyway, I hope you have a wonderful day. Keep doing what you're doing. Spread the word about the show and um, yeah, keep being yourself.